All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Winning Momentum Podcast with your host, that's me, Scott Sinclair. We are on episode uh, 203, I believe. I hope everybody is having a great summer holiday. I've been enjoying mine. I've been skipping a couple of weeks of shows, as you know, if you're a subscriber. But we're back at it. Need to get some content out to you. And we'll be doing a short show today, I think. We'll see how it goes. But I hope it's pretty short because I am heading out on a trip, flying out uh, east this week, visiting a couple of my companies and uh, doing some family visits as well, which is exciting. So what are we going to talk about today? Here's a thought that I, um, if particularly if you're in sales, but in business in general, if you're an entrepreneur, an owner-manager, um, a sales manager out on the road in sales, anything that's forward-facing in business, do not try to convince people of anything. Never try to convince people of anything. What is your job as a salesperson? Your job as a salesperson is not to convince somebody to buy your product. Your job is not to manipulate me into buying your car that you're trying to sell, that's not your job. No, what your job is, is to help people that want to buy, to buy. Help people that want to buy already, to buy. They need your product, they need your service. That's your target. And your job as a salesperson is to help them overcome their fears, to help them overcome their objections, and to purchase your solution to their problem which already exists. It's not to manipulate them into thinking that they have a problem or a need that you're trying to fill. So you're not trying to convince them. You're trying to help them overcome their fears and objections. It's a very important distinction. I have to tell you, um, back in so long ago, maybe the mid-90s, and I had started a a, uh, corporate finance firm by the name of Merchant Capital in Canada, we ended up in many countries doing deals around the world. And it was a pure corporate finance boutique, which means that you're doing financings. So companies need money, mergers and acquisitions and divestitures. So companies are buying other companies, merging with other companies, selling their businesses, um, restructuring and business valuation. Okay, so that's the core four products of any corporate finance boutique firm. And that's what we did at Merchant Capital way back in the day. And early on, and this was my first entrepreneurial venture, by the way, I had left what is now KPMG, the accounting firm, in their corporate finance investment banking business valuation group and moved to a uh, moved to Ottawa, Canada, which they affectionately called Silicon Valley North back in the day and started doing deals and getting paid for them as an intermediary, helping businesses get this money. I wasn't doing it as principal. I had no money back then. About a year in to this entrepreneurial adventure, I met a a fellow by the name of, wait for it, Duke King. Duke King. Harold King was his name, but everybody called him Duke. He called himself Duke. Um, uh, Ex-Wall Streeter. I believe he was a founding partner at Wasserstein Prella. He was a head trader at Dylan Reed or a senior trader at Dylan Reed. Anyways, I don't remember the exact resume. Uh, Good guy and met him and uh, he he just cold called me. I met him from Drake's and sort of within a week, he became a partner in the firm. 
Um, and we built a significant little business from our corporate finance boutique from, uh, from that partnership meeting. And so Duke was an interesting guy. I'd come from the accounting world. Um, I had the technical skills. I was a good, strong technical investment banker, corporate finance, uh, transaction professional. And Duke was a trader and a salesperson of a sort. And it was an interesting mix. And he came from public markets. I came from private markets. He was older than me by at least a decade. Not, not crazy older than me, but you know, more experienced than I was back then. I would have been just around, I think I started the firm when I was 29. So I met him when I was 30, 31, somewhere in that range, I believe. And uh, so he would have been early forties and experienced and done the whole global wall street uh, and London UK thing. And so had a lot to teach me. And I always, you know, used to laugh at what the differences between him and I, what I was good at and what he was good at. So for example, let's say we had a, a tech company back in the day that would come to us and say, Hey, merchant capital, we need to raise $4 million. Remember this is the mid nineties. So today that'd be $50 million, $100 million, whatever, but it was small deals back then. We need to raise $4 million to start this PC company, or, you know, we're going to build a new computer, which was the state of the technology back then. You had a lot of deals about building clones and, and doing things differently from a hardware perspective. A lot of telecommunications in Ottawa back then, uh, some software, not a lot, but hardware telecommunications was uh, a lot of the deals that we would see back then. And so they would come to me and, and I could look at a company, I could do some financial analysis, I could talk to management and I could do, okay, we're going to, we sign an engagement letter. We're going to go raise you this money, this uh, $4 million in my hypothetical example, which I think was an actual example. I just don't remember all of the key details after so many years, but, uh, what I was really good at from my background is I could prepare the financial model because you need a rolling financial model. I talk about on the Winning Momentum podcast uh, a lot. You need a rolling financial model to be able to show the the projections of the company, the key assumptions, the critical, uh, sorry, the key uh, performance indicators, the KPIs. What are the what drives this business economically going forward? You can show the projections. It's that model which is used to communicate the opportunities of the business with your prospective investors and to drive the the business valuation. At what price am I bringing in uh, this new shareholder? Um, how do I service the debt if it's a debt deal? Right, it's all drives out of that model. So I could write that. I could write the package, the what is now called a, a CIM, a confidential information memorandum, in which most of you, if you're in business and raising money, you would think of as a deck. But if you're trying to finance startups, if you're trying to finance early stage, high growth companies, and if you're trying to finance trouble companies, decks, which are typically PowerPoint slides, are just horrible, horrible presentation tools. We like to write sims and we like to do it in words because you have to tell a story. It's not, if you're trying to, let's say this was uh, seven, eight years ago in Canada and you were trying to raise a hundred million dollars on a cannabis deal and the market was hot, retail investors were buying 
those deals uh, for IPOs, you know, so pre-IPO institutions. There was three of them or four of them that were sort of in on every deal. And everybody knew what they were looking for. And you could communicate what they were looking for in a, in a PowerPoint deck, right? Here's management. Here's uh, the greenhouse we have that we're converting from whatever, uh, from tomatoes to cannabis. Here's the capital expenditures required. And here's how much land we have and permitting to grow this greenhouse out so that we have funded capacity as opposed to just capacity. And then, you know, just boilerplate, boilerplate shit on the market and regulation and where you think, see things going because every company had that same information. And, you know, if you had a good management team and if you had the right structure and if you had ticked all those boxes, you were going to get the money and you were going to get the money at a, a valuation that everybody understood. That was the market back there. It turned out not to be a good market in the set. Well, lots of people made lots of money, but in the sense that those valuations were not sustainable and every, every cannabis company has gone to crap since then, but you could sell that on a deck because it didn't require a story. But if you have to have a story, if you, if it's not what the market is buying on mass repeatedly today, you need to be able to communicate a story and you can't do that in a deck. So you do it in a word document. Uh, that's the way we do it. We tell a story and that's why much of our, much of our, uh, well, all of our deals uh, at the end of the day are successful because we wouldn't take a deal if we didn't think we could be successful on it. And the, you know, and a story, by the way, if you think about a troubled business, the story is here's what the business was. Here's how it's gotten trouble. Here's what we changed. People always forget that. Here's what we changed, which typically means part of management. So we augment management with new skills or we get rid of some old management, whatever it is, but here's what we've changed. Here's the financing we need. And here's what we do with that money and why things are going to be different, right? So it's that whole story going from the trouble we were in to the changes we've made to the way the investor or lender gets in the deal and then what we're going to do with the funds to make money going forward. And so that's a story and you can't really do that in a PowerPoint deck. So I was really good at writing that out, preparing the model, setting up the due diligence room, right? Due diligence for those of you that aren't in the business is after a lender says, okay, or an investor, someone that wants to buy shares would sign a term sheet or a subscription agreement and say, yeah, I want to buy this stuff. Um, subject to me verifying that everything you told me is true. And so you set up a, a data room. People can review documents and contracts and uh, financial ledgers and all that stuff and make sure for themselves that they're comfortable with the deal, right? So I was good at preparing all of those materials and then running a process. Well, what is a, a process? You know, let's let's talk about if you're selling a business. Well, the M&A process to sell a business is you you prepare the materials that I just said, and you also prepare what's called a, a teaser letter, which is sort of a one-page, two- or three-paragraph deal uh, document that says, hey, we have a company that's got a new way to build, in that old example back in the mid-'90s, a clone computer, um, white-label product, and you know here's their costing, and it's in North America, and here's why it's going to be successful. And we're trying to raise, 
in my example, again, $4 million by selling common equity for whatever, right? And so you give enough to get somebody interested, but not enough to give away the company. That's what's called a teaser letter. And then you could uh, prepare a database. Well, who am I going to send those to, these teaser letters? And back then you sent them by fax. You didn't send them by email. And so you had to prepare a list. And the, the M&A game, the process is that you you prepare a list, hopefully of about 500 qualified targeted companies, which then you would buy industry data lists, um, you know, trade show trade show lists, any way you could to get the names of people, of companies that were in a similar business if it was a strategic uh, company that you were trying to sell your business to, or financial buyers if you're trying to, if you're trying to sell your company to a private equity fund or, you know, uh, any other type of fund that would buy this sort of business. So you create your list of about 500, then you phoned every one of them and you said, hey, what's the name of your CEO and the fax number, please? Right. And then you have to get through the barriers to giving out that sort of information by phone back in the mid nineties. And so you would get, uh, you would get a list of 500 names and their fax number. And then you start faxing out the teaser letter to all of these people. And the teaser letter would also say, Hey, get a hold of us, uh, by phone. Here's my information. And, uh, if you want to see, sign a non-disclosure agreement and see the package, right. And out of if you had the right, a decent deal out of that, you out of 500, you would get, say, 20 to 40 replies. So you would send out 20 to 40 packages. And out of that, you would get five to 10 really interested parties. And out of that, you would get three to five bids for doing that deal. And then you'd close one of them and you had an element of competition because you had three to five. So the point being, to sell a business like most sales is a numbers game, like almost everything in life. It's a numbers game. You just hit enough of it and you're going to find the right party. So I was really good at running that process, right? And then what you had to do the next part, once you had those three to five interested parties is you had to remove their barriers to doing the deal. In other words, you had to pre-structure the deal on a way that makes sense. You had to have your your client on side because I'm acting for the company. And if the company has unrealistic expectations in terms of valuation or the money they need, or they're not communicating the risks very well, you have to work with them and, and you have to negotiate and you have to close the deal. So that's what I was good at back then. Now, the partner Duke, on the other hand, was completely useless at that. I can't stress that enough. If I had a, a client, uh, like I just said, and and this person, this company needed $4 million for 25% of their company or 45 or 51% of their company, he could not go sell that because he didn't understand that process. He didn't want to put in the legwork. I'm, I'm not saying he was lazy. The, by no stretch of the imagination was that true, but it was just a different way to think in a different skill set. But what this guy could do, which always blew me away, is he would call me at midnight one night and he would say, and when I say one night, I mean twice a week. And he'd say, hey, I was out with dinner with my uh, girlfriend slash wife, whoever it was at the time. And uh, I met this guy at the table next to us. So we'd literally be talking to the person at the table beside him. And his name is so-and-so. And he owns uh, five companies 
And so he wants to sell one of them. So we have that engagement and he needs some help restructuring this other one so we can get that engagement. And also he's going through a divorce. And so he needs some family law business valuation and some tax planning on that. And he would love an offshore tax structure to kind of shelter some assets and pay less tax on this other deal that he's doing. So we would, he, he would be out for dinner and he'd be talking to the person next door and he would come back with four deals and he would do that all the time. And then I was capable of actually doing those deals. And that was my strength. And so what a great partnership that was for uh, quite a while and different skill sets. And so this all comes back to how, how, how was he able to do that? And the answer of course, is he was very, a very personable fellow. People like talking to him. Uh, they found that he had, you know, a great, um, a great resume had the wall street, London, UK thing in his background, which most people thought was, I don't know what the right word is, but exciting or interesting. Um, but then he asked questions and empathize. He just would ask questions and try to understand who this person was and what their needs were. And he wasn't ever trying to sell them what we were selling, right? He wasn't trying to convince them to put $2 million into our stupid clone company. He was, what he was doing was the other way around is he was figuring out what they were trying to buy, what they needed and then provide a solution to him because uh, he had a partner in me that could was very creative and could do you know a bunch of different stuff all around the world, right? And so what I was doing in a process in my M and A process because the if you're trying to raise money for the company, it's the same as that M and A process that uh, I described. You create the package, you create the materials, you create your database, which would not be 500, but it might be 10 might be 20, depending on the deal. <clears throat> I try to keep ours uh, really small because I actually know, I know who the lenders are and the investors are, but you create your database and you go out and it's a numbers game. You're going to find somebody that's interested if you have a deal that's doable and you're creative and flexible enough to create that transaction, create that deal for those lenders. So that's what I was doing. Was I trying to convince somebody to invest in the deal? No. I was creating a process to find people who already would be interested in the deal. And then I created a bunch of materials to help them overcome their objections, overcome their hurdles, overcome their fears. That's what I was doing. What was Duke doing? He was doing the same thing, but backwards. He was forgetting about that deal that I was trying to sell. And, but what he was doing was listening to the person he was talking to, asking about a bunch of questions and creating transactions out of the needs that already exist for this person. So both of those examples and the different ways that we go about it are really all to say that you you're wasting your time and you're being manipulative. If you're trying to convince somebody to buy who doesn't want to buy what you ought to be focusing on as a salesperson, what will make you successful now and over the long term is to sell to people who already want to buy and help them make that purchase, okay? And how do you know if they want to buy? Well, you ask questions. You ask questions and you fill the funnel, right? So that's what that's all about. When people say, well, 
what does that mean? You're filling the funnel as a sales person, as a sales uh, person is you, that's that M&A process I described to you. I would start with the database of 500, you know, related or presumably interested parties. And that was my, the top of my funnel. Out of that would flow 20 to 40 of them that wanted to respond on that particular day and sign a non-disclosure agreement. And out of that, at the end, I would have three bids, as I said. And so you're funneling down those opportunities to the people that want to buy, right? And and that's what you, that's what I would do to sell a particular product. And what Duke would do is forget about that product, but he would ask a bunch of questions from the person that he met to qualify and try to assess what their needs are and see if we could create products around that. So I thought that was always interesting. So, so what are you doing in sales? You're helping people who want to buy to buy. And so one book I always enjoy is the, uh, the way of the wolf by Jordan Belfort. You can, uh, you know, him from the wolf of wall street movie, uh, with Lee, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, which was a fun and interesting, a movie, but it's based on a real life character, Jordan Belfair, who's a self-proclaimed sales expert. And I believe he is a sales expert. And in his book, he talks about the three elements of a sale and he puts them on a scale of one to 10. So think about the product or service that you are offering. So the product or service that you're offering a potential customer, right? So let's say you're selling me a car. Well, your product is your car. And what Jordan would say is, well, on a scale of one to 10, how do I evaluate that car? What number would I put on it? 10 being the most awesome product on the face of the earth, the most awesome vehicle for what I'm looking for on the face of the earth, and one being the worst, right? That is crap. So what number do I put on that? And then the second element would be you, as a salesperson, how do I feel about you and what's important to me about dealing with a salesperson, which might be integrity, uh, knowledge, expertise, these sorts of things, right? And you put that on a one to 10 uh, scale and then the company that you're representing, right? Because if you, there's, there's that old expression that you never get fired for buying from IBM. I think I'm showing my age when I have that when I give that expression, maybe it doesn't relate to today's economy, but there used to be, you know, if you wanted to buy a photocopier or a computer as a purchasing manager at a large company and a small startup company has a better mousetrap um, and IBM's is more expensive and has less features, but you buy the IBM anyways, because you're not going to get fired for purchasing from IBM. You always had a defense, right? When you came to your human resource review. Whereas if you buy from the risky startup company and then they go bankrupt next month and they're not servicing the product that they sold you, well, as a purchasing person, you might get fired for that, right? Because you took a risk when you didn't need to take a risk. And so Jordan talks about the three elements being you, the product that you're offering, you and your, your company, putting those on a scale, a purchaser in their mind would put that on a scale of one to 10 um, and But they're doing it twice for each one. What does that mean? Well, they would look at your product or your service intellectually, logically, which means I'm going to buy this vehicle 
because I can expl- think of it as, can you explain to your friends and family why you bought that particular vehicle? So you could say, well, I got a bunch of information on this vehicle. I did my research within the class and this has a really high safety rating. It has a, it has a, a, a great fuel economy, high performance, whatever it is that's important to you, but you can explain it with stats, with logic, that's rating the product on an intellectual level. But then you also rate the product product on an emotional level. I've told the story on the predecessor show to the Winning Momentum podcast, which was Martinis with Scott. You can find it on the same channels on, um, on YouTube, on our channel there. And the story of when I was younger and I bought my first Porsche, which I always wanted to do, was kind of a childhood dream. And I went out and bought a Porsche and in Canada, I bought the Cayenne, and in Canada, it was the, it was a brand new SUV that Porsche had brought out way back when, and I bought the first one that was white with a beige interior. It was really sweet, and I would look out at uh, my house at night out the window and look at my car in the driveway and have a big smile on my face. It just made me happy. Now, do you think I know the safety rating of that vehicle? Not a chance. Do you think I know the performance statistics? I mean, it's a Porsche. It's going to go quick, but do you think I had stats on that? Nah. Now, safety, nothing. I don't know anything about that. It was on an emotional level that I wanted to buy into that brand, into that product, right? And so product or service rating, uh, the salesperson themselves rating at a intellectual and emotional level, and the company that they represent, their reputation on an intellectual and emotional level, right? Like when you're buying an Apple, I'm looking at my, my iPad right now, does that have better performance than, than non-Apple alternatives, right? I'm talking to you on my uh, iPad. I have my iPhone here. I I'm, I'm, have my notes for this show on my MacBook Pro. I don't own a PC, right? And so is that because the MacBook works better than the PC? I have no idea. I haven't, I haven't logged on to a PC in 15 years. I like something like that. And so again, there's an emotional connection to a company that has gone about things a bit differently. And so that's what it all means. And then what Jordan would tell you is that you take those ratings, you know, and if you're, what's your maximum? So you've got six different um, metrics, right? Three times two. And so your maximum would be 60 and your lowest would be six. And he would tell you that if you, you know, the closer you got to 60, the more chance you had of making a sale. And it's a interesting, logical way to think about selling. And so that's what you're doing when you're selling. You're not trying to do this with a buyer who's not interested in buying. That's not a buyer. What you're trying to do is someone who's already has a need. I have a need for a car. Um, you're trying to get them to buy your car by increasing the score on those six metrics. You know, the, the Wolf of Wall Street is famous for, there's a line in, there's a line in the movie about sell me this pen, right? And then what the person does, it takes the pen and starts talking about the features of this pen. Oh, wow. It's a really nice pen and it's whatever, right? And wrong, wrong, wrong. Ask questions, establish whether the person needs the pen. Hey, oh, I hear you need a pen. Is that true? Do you need a pen? Yeah, I need a pen. Why do you need a pen? What are you writing? What are you doing? 
right? And then you're just fine tuning the need um, and you're qualifying this prospect. Do they have a need for that pen? Do I have a need for a vehicle? And am I able to afford it, right? Can I actually do the deal, right? That's the qualification process. Those are the people you want to start your funnel with, or if you just have a bunch of cold call lists, that's the next step in the funnel is that sort of qualification. And then you're working on the six elements, uh, product, you and your company uh, times two. So each of those intellectually and each of those emotionally. So what is it when you're doing, what is it that you're doing when you are, when you're uh, creating a, a pamphlet or information material an online link or brochure about a vehicle that I might want to buy that talks about specifics of safety ratings, uh, performance, fuel economy. Well, you're looking to increase within your class for me as a qualified buyer, you're looking to increase the rating, the intellectual rating of your product, right? What is it when you run a commercial, I don't know, on a, on a Volvo that shows your young family with kids in the back out on a family vacation and you're talking about safety. You're creating an emotional connection, so you're working on that metric, okay? And what are you doing? These are ways to just, I'm talking about examples of how to increase and what sales are and marketing ought to be to increase uh, your rating on these uh, on these on these elements of sales and so when you're creating personal content you what are you doing there like I do a bunch of personal content on on this show on YouTube I write blog posts um, I, I attend on other people's shows I do posts on LinkedIn and now on TikTok we'll talk about that in a minute and so I do all that and the whole point is to create a connection with you right? With a prospect and not because I'm just randomly think that you are going to want to buy something for me. It has nothing to do with that. I'm adding value to you. But one of the benefits for me from a marketing perspective is that a, a, if I run into a new contact somewhere, a prospect some other way, right? Someone that needs help with their business, needs a restructuring, needs some financing. What's the first thing they do? Well, they Google me, they looked at my LinkedIn profile, and then what do they do? They find all this content, and then they start listening to it, and they go, holy shit, this guy's really an expert, and he also seems like a decent dude, right? And so I've hugely increased my score about me, somebody they don't know about, um, by producing this content. It's not because I think I'm trying to sell you anything. I've never tried to sell you anything on this content. I'm trying to provide value. But the double whammy for me is if I meet somebody who's interested, 100% of the time, they listen to the content and then they and then they recite it back to me, right? And what that does for me in a sales perspective is it takes what could be a nine-month sales cycle or, you know, getting comfortable with me, lunches, dinners, golf, whatever, and it just turns it into a one or two-week sales cycle because I listen to some content and I'm past that hurdle. I've gone from who knows who this guy is, who knows who Sinclair Range, my company is, into like an eight or nine out of 10 on those sales metrics 
almost immediately, right? So that's that's the strong benefit to me of creating that content and showing my expertise and trying to help people by adding value. Not the only reason I do it. I do it mostly to try to add more value to more people than I can do one-on-one. Okay. That's, that's why I do this. I'm just giving you the sales ancillary benefit that comes along with that. Right. And so when you're producing content, you're doing the same thing. I did a show with uh, Laura Stewart on the winning momentum podcast. You can look that up on the, the scottsinclair.com. It'll be all our content is put there. And Laura is a Toronto real estate agent and coach and um, does a terrific job on her content creation and social media posts. And in doing so, she positions herself as an expert, separates herself from the pack, and is also just a really personable young lady. And so helps herself on both of those elements tremendously, in my view, from putting out that uh, content. So there's lots of things that you can do. It helps you think about sales and it helps you think about marketing. If you think about those six elements, uh, because you could quickly come up with ideas to increase your score on each one of those. Why do you take people out for dinners and drinks? Like there's some people that are really good at that, including me taking people out for dinners and drinks, not so much golf, but some people are into golf Um, you do that to create that connection, that emotional connection with the person you want to do business with, right? Whereas other people hate doing that. They hate going out. They don't want to be involved on a touchy feely with another human being, but they're great behind a computer, uh, computer doing this virtually doing it socially. And so there's lots of different ways to skin that cat, as they say. Um, But understanding why you're trying to do these things is really, really important. And prospecting, understanding that you're never trying to convince, you're never trying to convince um, somebody who doesn't want to buy to buy. That's just manipulation. You're trying to help them overcome their hurdles, their objections, and their fears, which at the end of the day boils down to increasing the score on those six uh, sales elements. That's a great way to think about sales. What are we here? We're 35 minutes in. I had a whole other segment, which might take us half an hour, but I'm not into it in the middle of August here. So we'll do that later. I did want to mention to you that I started last week on a lark just to see how it would go. I set up a TikTok account. I've been doing uh, five days a week, just a 60 second TikTok, I've been talking about financial products, how to raise money for your business, sales. Um, it's going to be all the winning momentum content on a on a daily 60-second bite business. And then I'm taking that content and I've been testing it on YouTube Shorts on the Winning Momentum Podcast YouTube channel. It's going on my Instagram stories. Uh, so you can look it up there. Anyways, if you're if you're interested in that, you can you can look at and go and subscribe on those various platforms. So the Winning Momentum podcast on YouTube, um, Scott Sinclair on uh, Instagram, and Scott Sinclair on TikTok. And if you need to go to thescottsinclair.com and find links to those uh, to those platforms, I'm certain that you can do that. I'm not sure we have the TikTok up there yet, but we will. And I think that's all I have for you today. I'm off on a trip next week. Have a great Have a great business week and 
what else do I want to say to you? I think that's it. As I said, enjoy your week. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back to you next week. This is the Winning Momentum Podcast with your host, Scott Sinclair. Come come subscribe, put your name on the list for the scottsinclair.com. Helps me out a lot. Thank you.